0: in the name of the one holy and living God. Please be seated. A Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Well, maybe I should say, thank God I'm not like a Pharisee tax collector, prayer of repentance, the sanctimonious Pharisee exalting himself, bragging to God about all he's doing. We're not like that, at least we know better. Thank God, thanks for this parable. Maybe I should just sit down. (laughs) But with that thought, boom, we've drawn a line between who's in and who's out in the eyes of God and with that suddenly we're the people Jesus is addressing this parable to we're the ones carrying contempt we're the in they're the out thank God the Pharisees how many of us have any sympathy there what's the first word or what are the first words that come to mind when you think of a Pharisee let's take a sec If you hold that word now, imagine you're back at that time with Jesus and you're listening to him and there's a Pharisee or several Pharisees there. What do they look like? How are they standing? What are their expressions? I have to admit my first word when I think of Pharisee is hypocrite or villain. And I imagine tall and dark hair. I don't know why that is my image of villainy, but tall, dark hair a furrowed brow, arms crossed perhaps in a real challenging stance, maybe nose in the air, or maybe a book of law in hand. And this image and these descriptors that we have so instinctively in our hearts, they invite us into very dangerous anti-Jewish territory because it isn't a huge leap from Pharisee to Jew. And in that leap, we find some of the seeds of anti-Semitism that have plagued Christianity since the earliest centuries. Seeds that grew into stalks, defining Jesus as being in total opposition to Judaism. Stalks that produce branches of terrible discrimination and acts of oppression and ultimately extermination. Stalks that grew until we had a forest that produced the Holocaust. Makes that glib remark and my glib instinct to say, hey, thank God I'm not a Pharisee. Somewhat stomach churning. So how is it that the Jewishness of Jesus got completely cast aside. How is it that the disciples, all Jewish, Paul himself understood by many to be a Pharisee, how come they came to be described as Christians and not Jews. And when the idea of Christianity as a religion distinct from Judaism didn't fully come into being till about a hundred years after Jesus' death. The New Testament writers understood themselves to be part of Jewish religious expression and history, rather than starting a new religion called Christianity. The Gospel authors, known as Matthew and John, Jewish, author of the letter to James, letter writer James, author of the book of Revelation. Over the centuries, the richness and fullness of Jesus' identity got obscured by how Christianity came to be defined and came to define itself in opposition to Judaism. And in doing so, we've lost some of the heartbeat of the disciples, the heartbeat of Paul, of their Jewishness, which helps us understand Jesus, helps us understand his message, helps us understand his ministry. And we've lost some of the lifeblood of the gospel authors known as Matthew and John have lost some of the lifeblood of their formation their spiritual quest to be wholly faithful to who God is as God was known revealed in Hebrew scripture so today there's a robust movement within new scholarship scholarship of the new testament to revisit the text revisit the gospel revisit the epistles from a deeply Jewish perspective. In 2011, one of the most prominent or publicly prominent of these scholars, Amy Jill Levine, published a remarkable book, The Jewish Annotated New Testament. She led a collaboration of over 50 senior Jewish scholars, New Testament experts, Greco Roman social historians, theologians, and more, with expertise in first and second century Judaism. And their commentaries and their annotations illuminate, contextualize, and for many of us, recontextualize many dimensions and stories and utterances in the Gospels and epistles. They looked at what were the religious beliefs, the actual religious beliefs and spiritual practices of the time, the customs, the literature, the socio-political situation, the Roman culture. Scholarship like this and personal narratives of engaging with Jewish history, of engaging with one's Judaism, of engaging with one's following of Christ is, is coming more and more to the fore. And they're digging into the roots and uncovering and talking about what's now called the great parting of the ways, the split of Christianity and Judaism into being distinct identities, being distinct in a way that is defined as oppositional to one another, as opposed to distinct in an interrelational way. They're writing about the historical forces that drove both Judaism and Christianity into this oppositional stance and it is on the side of Christianity a really ugly history. By the end of the first century the followers of Jesus became known as Christian and the parting of the ways began to be calcified and calcified with terrible venom. Ignatius of Antioch wrote in the first century, it is monstrous to talk of Jesus Christ and to practice Judaism. Monstrous. And fast forward through the centuries to Martin Luther, one of the key leaders of the Protestant reformations. He penned horrible tracts directly attacking Judaism, some of which Scholars believe some scholars believe were the foundation, or at least influence, on Nazism. So as much as our heritage is in this root, our heritage is also in the painful consequences of this division, painful consequences and threads of anti-Semitism. And I look back at my own history with Christianity and I look even at how we describe the Bible and how the Bible is printed. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. When my mind originally old, out with the old, in with the new. The old is worthless, the new is what's good. The New Testament supplanting the old. That's not right. Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, what some call the First Testament, feed in to inform and shape how we understand Jesus and Jesus' message. It wasn't until I took EFM, a course where you spend a year, first year reading the Hebrew Scriptures, second year New Testament, It wasn't until I was in EFM way before being ordained that I discovered everything that Jesus taught was actually in Hebrew scripture? I had no idea. I thought Jesus thought of all this stuff. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. I thought that was new. Oh no, Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Even this idea that God loves all, that we're all created in the image of God. Somehow I didn't put it together that that's the first chapter of Genesis. And justice, Justice is all over the place. I did not take the time to count up how many times in Hebrew scriptures we're told to care for widows and orphans and the poor. And then there's Micah, the great call in Micah that says this is what God requires of you to do what is right, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. I'm embarrassed that that blew my mind, but it did. I actually thought all of Jesus's teachings were new. I had no understanding that he had been formed and he grew out and was part of this line through the beginning of time, through the beginning of God's revelation of who God is and God's love for God's people. And the biggest mind blow in those years in EFM was the call right from the very beginning for the nations, all the nations to be brought in as one together. That contextualizes helps us understand what happens later when there's the call to the disciples to include Gentiles in the ministry helps understand Jesus as the fulfillment of God's profound love for the people. Jesus fulfilling the vision of drawing all peoples, all nations to be part of the whole. So I've now wandered pretty far away from that Pharisee. I think it's a context we need to hold in mind as we listen to this parable we heard. How is it that the Pharisees got cast so negatively? How is it that we've lost who they really were at the time? Because Amy Jill Levine and others who've studied first century Judaism talk of the Pharisees that their role in culture was to help people live out their faith in daily life. That they were holders of what was called the oral Torah, not the written Torah, was also referred to as the law that they were holders of these traditions and seeking to apply these traditions to everyday life. So it makes total sense that the Pharisees would be engaging with Jesus and engaging in what is an intra-religious debate about how do you live in relationship with God? And Jesus poking and stretching, just the same way Jesus pokes and stretches us through scripture into seeing the bigger vision The Pharisees is keeper of oral Torah. Another word as it's translated into English is the law. And another image that we have that is pretty calcified is the idea that the Pharisees were legalists and bound by law. What if we were to think about it in the true meaning of the law that they were deeply into following Torah and oral Torah? So back to the parable itself. What is Jesus saying here? What are people at that time hearing? The people would have looked to the Pharisees as keepers of the spiritual walk of life. Pharisees with great respect. And here Jesus paints a bit of a caricature of a Pharisee being totally over the top in his religious practice. He's fasting twice a week. That's way above the call. He's tithing all his income. Well, tithing was defined as parts of income, part of our asset base, let us say. So people would have heard this incredibly faithful person doing way more, way above and beyond, and that their prayer may even have had echoes of the Psalms where the Psalmist lift up thanks and praise that I'm not doing evil that I'm not being horrible in this life. I'm not stealing. Where a twist is, is the having contempt for people who are not following that way. And the tax collector, his prayer, deep echoes of Psalm 51. So what would the reversal be? The holier than thou to the repentant, maybe instead the reversal is this revelation that God's grace is for all. As Amy Jill Levine points out the last lines and the last lines of the parable when Jesus says that the tax collector goes home justified rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. She points out that the translation of the word rather has a Greek root, is rooted in Greek in the prefix para, and actually may mean he went home alongside para, alongside the Pharisee. It's a very different image of a tax collector walking with the Pharisee, alongside. The Pharisee, holy, holy, brought low the tax collector sinner brought high and walking together. Makes me think of that uh, parable about the vineyard and the vineyard owner who hires people in the morning for X amount of salary, then hires another chunk of people for, at noon for about the same, amount, for the same amount of money, and then right before the end of the day, another batch of people are, come in and are hired, and they're given the same amount of money as the people at the beginning of the day, and people at the beginning of the day really resentful of the end of the day people, pointing at God's grace for all, the abundance of all for all. So perhaps if we extend this idea of God's grace for all, we could extend that idea into our own understandings of Judaism, our own understandings of Christianity, to really look at, are we being holier than thou? Are we thinking that we are extra special? Or are we thinking we are both on paths to be faithful to God, that we are both exploring? that God's grace is abundant and there for everyone. Amen.